friends, benders, and non-benders alike. I'm Janet Varney. And I'm Dante Bosco, and this is Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's podcast about all things Avatarverse. Now, Bosco, this is a person that we reached out to a while ago. He is perhaps the busiest man in show business. We wanted to talk to him because this is someone that you have worked with many times, not just on the show, but on other shows, and is known to be a wonderful human being, a talented one with a great heart, and we finally got him! It's almost the end of the season. Finally graced us with his presence. Ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce you to John Carlo, the director of The Great Divide Volpe? <laughs> hey! Like, that's the only <laughs> episode he ever did. It's just that The Great Divide has become something that I would kid about just because it's that's so right. polarizing of an episode. And we, we've had long talks about the episode. And I'd like to talk more about that episode because that episode's actually grown on me so much over the years, John Carlo. Let's talk about it. John Carlo, <laughs> we had a recap of the episode where Dante and I talked a bunch about it. And then we had a special bonus episode in which we had two other friends of ours who know the Avatar verse very well debate, do a lighthearted debate on the merits of that episode. And I will say that getting a tweet from someone who said the perfect foil to talking about whether The Great Divide is filler is devoting two full episodes of your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Giving it the most attention possible. We gave it a lot of attention. Stretching it out. We gave it a lot of attention. And dare I say, we gave it a lot of love. A lot of love. I love that it's become like such a discussion topic. (laughs) It really has. (laughs) It's like the great redemption of the Great Divide. (laughs) Yeah, people love talking about it. For sure, above and beyond the Great Divide, but certainly including the Great Divide. We are so happy to have you on. Your name comes up. I mean, just having covered the first season of Avatar The Last Airbender doing book one, your name has come up over and over and over. You had such a hand in the shaping of this season and of the show at large that, you know, you're really one of the OG minds in Avatar, you know, Mike and Brian. And and we've talked to Eric when he was over at Nickelodeon. And we had an offline conversation with Laura McMullen. Oh, that's cool. You got a hold of Lauren. That's awesome. She's very brilliant and a mentor to a lot of us, you know, including Mike and Brian. She was kind of the OG when we all got to the animation industry. So we learned a lot from Lauren, (laughs) you know, about how to how to make animation direct when we all started at King of the Hill. (laughs) That's what you worked on that sort of introduced you to Mike and company. Yeah, I was working on King of the Hill. And then there's these two guys from the East Coast, these RISD graduates, (laughs) Mike and Brian. And I want to say Mike had some directing experience on Family Guy, maybe. There was a, a moment where some of the King of the Hill guys went over to Family Guy for a bit and then they went came back. So tell us a little bit more about your pre King of the Hill days. What's your background? I was born and raised in Tacoma, Washington, but I did go to school in New York. Where'd you go to school? School of Visual Arts. So yeah, I'm very, I love the East Coast. I love New York, but we were clearly not in the East Coast anymore when we were working it on King of the Hill. <laughs> That's right. We had a King of the Hill reunion with Mike Judge and a bunch of the cast up in San Francisco at Sketchfest, which is a comedy festival I produce. And it just sounded like a, a lot of fun combination of humility and humor and great, great talent because so many talented people worked on that show. And obviously you guys got along and they liked you because they you know, wanted you to stay in their lives and world and come into Avatar, right? Yeah. I mean, the way that I kind of remember it was they went away for a while and there was this rumor that they had 
had their own show in development at Nickelodeon. And I didn't know much about it other than like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then one day there was this big screening party that they had at Brian Konitzko's house. At the time, he was roommates with Ben, who uh, is part of the track team that did all the sound design and score for Avatar and Korra. Don't worry, we had him on. Yeah, and I remember just going with my wife I don't, and Jaws dropped. It was the pilot episode of mm. Avatar wow. that is on the DVD collection, but yeah. you can't turn off Mike and Brian's commentary <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> but that was the episode that we watched. And I remember thinking, like, how did they pull that off? Yeah, And didn't necessarily think I would work on it. It was just more of like a proud of my friends kind of moment. What was the stuff that got you into being interested in drawing and animating and directing and all of that? What were you a fan of growing up? This may sound like a trite response because right? a lot of people my age, we normally say Star Wars and Indiana Jones and... Spielberg and George Lucas movies. Sure. That was the stuff that I was raised on. I also really loved Looney Tunes when I was a kid. Like, a, <laughs> that was very influential. I was a Marvel guy. Oh, there you I used go. Used to read too. like sure. Spider Man and Fantastic Four and stuff like that. So all of that geeky stuff that is now very mainstream and very Comic Con centric. Yeah. I was raised on that stuff, and so figured out at an early age that animator was like a job someone could get. Yeah. <laughs> Did you think you were going to be like a comic book animator or drawer? There was absolutely a time in my life when I thought I might go that direction. But then I took an experimental animation class when I was like 14 years old. A local animator offered these classes in Seattle. How cool, though. And wow. I made a 13-second short and was addicted. Like, and it was a ton of work. Uh, how much did you draw for 13 seconds? One shot, two characters. You know, it was like a monkey and a gorilla. So whatever two times 24 is times 13. Wow. <laughs> We're not talking about doing it on an iPad. Yeah. You're drawing on paper and you're taking one picture. Drawing on paper, tracing it on acetate, painting the back of the cells. <sighs> I think I have it on YouTube. If you oh, search Giancarlo Volpe, Bananimation, that was what I called Banimation. it at the time. Bananimation. And I remember watching even the pencil test and going, comics are cool, but yeah. animation. I got to yes. do animation. It's a ton of work and was a ton of work at that time. And so you sort of have to have that high, right? That level of adrenaline to be like, oh, yes, this is worth it. It's all worth it. Animation does feel like a type of magic. And it feels like magic when your voice is paired with something that isn't right. you. And so to understand it as something magical and yet also be behind the scenes and know what it takes to get that magic and have that practical knowledge and still think of it as magic, I think is wonderful you're like <laughs> right. oh this took so much work it's not worth it i'd rather just watch well you know that was naive young john carlo <laughs> i see now I that see. i'm older and have shipped a ton of shows there is yeah. absolutely a side of it that's like man this is tedious and painstaking gotcha yeah <laughs> and, you know it's also kind of a, an addiction i think brian said in the avatar documentary that doing animation is like a uh is it sif Oh, Sisyphus? Like you're rolling the rock up the hill? Yes, and then you... <laughs> just pushing this giant boulder up a hill. Yeah. And it's painful, every step of it. And then all yeah. of a sudden, you get it over the top and it rolls down and then you go, that was fun. Yeah. Now I sort of want longer rests, though, between gigs. <laughs> As I get older, I'm like, when do I jump back into this again? <laughs> when you guys were starting this whole show, like, did you guys feel like young guns, young mavericks? 
we're going to take this town by storm. We're doing this whole new different kind of thing. There was definitely an element of that. There was a sense of, we want to do things different. We want to show people like, you can have a Miyazaki film yeah. that's a TV show. You can have a Miyazaki film every week. That was right. the goal we were trying to hit. Whether we hit that or not, I think is debatable. I think you guys got elements of it. Were you a fan of Miyazaki at that time? Yeah, I still am. But that was kind of the spirit of it was, let's prove that we can do this, you know. But I think we all didn't quite know what we were signing up for, like how hard it was going to be. Which is sometimes sure. better for young artists. Like if we yeah. knew how hard it was as young artists, I think a lot of us would not be doing the things that we did. That's right. Yeah. Even reading your book, Dante, your kind of plight as an actor, now director as well, and, and poet and many other things, gave a sense of that too. There's very high highs and very low lows, right. and, and you kind of have to keep going. Right. So when Mike and Brian reached out to you after you had seen the pilot... What was that conversation like? Because you came in really early. I mean, your first episode that you are given a director's credit for is Kiyoshi. That's a very early episode. I mean, that's yeah. what, episode four? Yeah. You must have seen that pilot. And then pretty quickly after that, I would imagine you got tapped because they had to like get into it pretty quick after that, I think. I know I'm trying to remember sort of the timeline, but it almost felt like a year later. And I think oh, that's wow. another one of those insightful things about like how slow the industry moves yeah. sometimes. Right. Like oh, they completed shocking. a pilot, but then it has to get focus group tested. Right. And, you know, they have to fly it up the flagpole at Nickelodeon, make sure that everyone agrees this is a good show and, and potentially marketable. And at the time I was hungry to direct and I was on King of the Hill. And I remember asking the line producer or something like, what would it take to direct an episode of King of the Hill? And I got sort of the typical, like, get in line. There's a lot mm. of people that want to direct. There's a lot of people with more seniority than you. Don't get your hopes up. So when Mike and Brian reached out about a potential directing gig on that really cool pilot that I wa had watched, you know, however long ago, it was exciting, but also scary because, you know, mm. there was a safety with King of the Hill where it was a successful show and didn't show any signs of getting canceled yet. Should I leave it behind to work on this new idea that we might only make six episodes and yeah. then I'm unemployed or something like that? So that was definitely oh the mindset at the time. How much do we love Mike and Brian? Every single time we have somebody from behind the scenes on the show, it just reinforces this idea that when you have a conversation with them and they sort of gently drop off the line, like, and then, you know, we wanted to hire all our friends. You know, yeah. you kind of hear that and and you put it somewhere in your brain and you're like, oh, that's so cool. But when it constantly is reinforced over and over by people who all kind of say what you say, which is they wanted that. Not only did they want to hire their friends, their friends did it. Yeah. And their friends were amazing. And they knew their friends were thinking outside the box and that you got it. You would get it. You know, the reality is taking a risk and leaving an established show to do something that's out of the box. They may never even air anything that we do. Like we look back now and it's such this legacy project, but at the time, it was like none of us involved knew what it was going to become a hit. Didn't even know if it was going to last. Yeah. I love those types of stories. And I think that's why I like to tell that part of it is because I think part of the fantasy of a show like Avatar is like, imagine what would that be like if you got asked to work on such a show? You may have had a little slightly different experience, Janet. You know, we're on the part two of, of a legacy. Different kind of pressure. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, actually. Different kind of pressure. Yeah. There was a ninth inning curveball thrown at me, too, where Family Guy said, we really want you to direct. So there was all of this intention to direct. King of the Hill said, wait. Yeah. Family Guy swooped in and said, we want you to direct. We're going to pay you this much money. 
And I ended up choosing art. I wanted to do the cool oh, project. Right. You know, and I don't mean that to trash Family Guy in any in any way. Avatar is very much about the aesthetic, right? Uh, absolutely. For you coming in not as a creator, but coming in as a collaborator and very much steering the ship in terms of directing your episodes, what does that process look like? I mean, when do you start storyboarding and how involved are you as the script is being written? Like, what's the sort of scope like? Yeah. Are you drawing any of these characters, John Carlo? The very basic response to that question is absolutely. It's complicated. Scripts are written, at least on that show. I wasn't in the writer's room other than to sort of peek in and make fun of them or something, you know, throw popcorn at John O'Brien or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, these scripts were written and then there was a director rotation and it was that simple. Like Dave Filoni would get episode one. Lauren got episode two. I was the, the number four director in the rotation. So I had no control over what scripts I was given. Every single episode, we would start with sort of a storyboard launch. So it would be myself, you know, the director, the storyboard team, Mike and or Brian, but usually both of them. And then production support, taking notes and stuff like that. And we would read the script. Oftentimes, Brian would sort of point out stuff that he wanted to see that was between the lines, you know, or mm. maybe Mike would give a little more insight into like, now remember, Zuko's uh, got a redemption arc or something. <laughs> so sure. he's not 100% evil, you know, so you want to see hints of like his, uh, his good side and stuff like that. And then, you know, we'd break for a few weeks and myself and the board artist would rough storyboards for like a couple weeks, come back. Mike and Brian would give notes. Then we'd go back and clean up the boards and, and it'd be like three or four steps before hmm. we would lock an animatic. Usually that's when I would sign off on an episode. This animatic is locked. Now I'm going to start the next episode. And Mike and Brian would take it the final stretch with color and music and sound design and all that and, and final edit and everything. So cool. When you're dealing with animation, you know, when we shoot on live action, we're using camera angles we're using lenses we're using lighting are you guys discussing that same kind of stuff with animation like let's push into a 50 doing the same kind of talk or no that's such a great question that's how we describe it when we're talking about the show we just talked about an episode where we're like and then the camera pans across da 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 and yeah. it's almost like they flip on a blue lens or something you know we only know how to talk about it as if someone's holding a camera making those changes yes. well, you go super close you go into Zuko's eyes you pushed way in like on an 80 yeah, yeah how do you talk about it we absolutely use that terminology across the industry so there's okay. lots of like pan to this cut to that but I will say that Brian was next level he was talking about lens choices and stuff like that, which we never said on King of the Hill. I really want this to be a wide angle lens and I want this to be wow. a telephoto. And I remember having to stop the meeting and be like, can you explain to me how that's different? How do I draw it so it looks like a wide angle lens? What's interesting is that years later, when I moved on to CG shows, you can actually click a button more or less and pick like a wide angle lens or a telephoto that will emulate live action cameras. But um, my crash course was on Avatar, <laughs> having Brian like make these crazy requests. And we were like, okay. Wow. You know, he was right. And he saw it in a lot of anime. Anime is very photo reference heavy. Uh, you can kind of tell like, oh, the camera lens that they took the picture with is they traced it or used it as reference in their drawing. So you can you can tell that it's got like a fisheye lens or whatever. Right. Yeah, right. I'm so 
so amazed. I mean, you must have had the experience of the choreography with Sifu Kisu, right? And the kind of sitting in on those sessions where you're sort of seeing the live version, then knowing this has to get translated to drawings, storyboarding. It has to go off and get shipped to our geniuses in Korea, 3D kicking and punching and spinning in the air. That was very much the spirit of it. If we film an actual person who knows Kung Fu, we would emulate the camera angles too. So if I had a low angle shot of Kyoshi warriors fighting, then we would take the camera and set it on the ground of the Nickelodeon basketball court <laughs> while, <laughs> wow. while Sifu Kisu is like spinning around and stuff like that. And if we did it correctly, I don't want to say we rotoscoped, but it was closer to rotoscoping than just making it up. I think that's how we got it as accurate as we did to a degree where martial artists, fans were saying, you actually got accurate Tai Chi in the show. Like I could practice Tai Chi by emulating Katara. I thought that was a huge accomplishment. And again, one of Brian's, you know, crazy ideas of, of being that accurate. And I thought Korra for the record, took it even next level. You could tell they took everything that they learned on Avatar and then like multiplied it. Yeah. Right. Did you have storylines or episodes that you worked on or that you directed? Of course, we're sort of leaning into book one right now because that's what we've been digging into so deeply for our first season of Braving the Elements. But were there episodes that you think of very fondly? Obviously, we talked a little bit about The Great Divide. But I mean, also, <laughs> let's not forget Kiyoshi, Batu of the Water Tribe, the Waterbending Master, oh, the yeah. Avatar Roku episode, which is huge and so powerful. Aang. You must defeat the Fire Lord before the comet arrives. But I haven't even started learning waterbending, not to mention earth and fire. Mastering the elements takes years of discipline and practice. But if the world is to survive, you must do it by summer's end. These are iconic, iconic episodes with some of the most iconic moments and characters that get introduced in them. Did you have favorites as time was going by? I remember at the time being sometimes jealous that Dave and Lauren got all the good episodes because, <laughs> like, <laughs> I really thought like Blue Spirit was amazing, you know. And, and I mean, Blue it Spirit is amazing. <laughs> but it's nice to hear people say that. No, actually, uh, you know, Avatar Roku was really good too. Or, great or, to buy. Yeah. And the Kyoshi Warriors. No, Kyoshi Warriors is a great episode. That is definitely an episode where I feel like something clicks in where you're meeting Suki and you're meeting these warriors and you're through their lens, you get a better understanding of what Sokka's all about and what his challenges are and how Aang's feeling and this idea of the greater world at large and the fact that this war has yeah. gone on. For that being, you know, the beginning of the season when I think all of you writers and Mike and Brian and directors, you know, everybody kind of goes, yeah, we were still trying to figure it out. You know, we really were right. trying to figure out what we were doing and what we were. It's amazing how iconic that episode is. This island is named for Kiyoshi? I know Kiyoshi. Ha! How could you possibly know her? Avatar Kiyoshi was born here 400 years ago. She's been dead for centuries. I know her because I'm the Avatar. That's impossible. The last Avatar was an airbender who disappeared a hundred years ago. That's me. Throw the imposter to the Unagi. Well, Kiyoshi, when you're establishing a prior Avatar, Avatar? the lineage of oh. what these Avatars are, 
the scope of the world is not now just in the moment. It's just kind of like you start to feel a history of this world, which not a lot of shows bring a history. just adds more weight to what's going on. It's not a show within the moment. It's a show that has a life that's gone on before this. Yeah. I killed Chin the Conqueror. A horrible tyrant. Chin was expanding his army to all corners of the continent. When they came to the neck of the peninsula where we lived, he demanded our immediate surrender. I warned him that I would not sit passively while he took our home. But he did not back down. On that day, we split from the mainland. I think that's a good way to put it because you watch the first two episodes and it's easy to think, oh, so is this a show that takes place in the water tribe, snow and and icy water all the time? But then you start to realize by Kyoshi Warriors, I mean, oh, it's a traveling show and this is a mm. big world and there's different kingdoms and different cultures. And it's going to be even harder stuff. to animate for all those reasons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember also on Kyoshi Warriors, I always wanted to do this shot of... Suki looking longingly <laughs> as Sokka flew away on Appa at the end of the episode. Aww. Like, where'd he go? Because it was my first episode directing, I didn't know that I could call for a shot that Mike or Brian didn't specifically ask for. So I didn't do it. Like, I chickened out. Yeah. And it was really interesting because I saw like a fan, did a fan art drawing that was almost exactly the shot ah, that I wanted to put so in the episode. Cool. <laughs> and I was like, that's so cool. Uh. She was kind of like drenched from the, the Unagi sprayed the island. At that point, did you guys know that she was going to come back? I don't think that it was set in stone, but I could tell by the way we were wrapping up the episode, like, oh, she's probably going to come she's back in come. some nice. form. But I didn't know that she was going to be his steady girlfriend or anything like that. There's no time to say goodbye. What about I'm sorry? For what? I treated you like a girl when I should have treated you like a warrior. I am a warrior. But I'm a girl, too. We didn't know that. He meets Yue not so far after that. And Sokka got a lot of girls. You know, he forgets right. Suki for a while till she comes back on the game. You know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, speaking of the Unagi, were there hybrid animals that you especially liked and liked to draw or kind of have fond memories of? Or Yeah, I never really got the whole turtle duck thing. Like... <laughs> turtle duck is hard to beat. It's hard to beat. <laughs> hard to beat that turtle duck. That's a really good one. Apparently, this was a thing that Brian did as a kid. He used to like to like mash up animals or something. Yep. <laughs> um, it just made it extra fun because I think part of the challenge for a lot of artists is we just want to draw something that's just the right amount of challenging mm -hmm. that it sort of stretches your brain but isn't hard to do. And so animal combos was just simple, fun way to do that. Drawing can be very relaxing when you're just doodling, but when you're trying to hit a deadline... Oh my gosh, I can't <laughs> even imagine. It can you be guys... exponentially stressful to you. It's like, you'll have bad days where it's just not turning out right. Yeah. It's like, oh, I gotta get 500 drawings done oh by Thursday. <laughs> Especially because it sounds like you guys were working on five episodes at a time, depending on right. where in the process the episodes were. So we quote-unquote finished this part of three, now we're on four, but we have to sketch five so we can get approval on them and then three came back and it needed them. absolutely i remember wrapping up an episode while starting the next one and then there'd always be a point where there are about three of them stacked on top of each other oh, yeah, you're yeah. still doing your yeah, last minute revisions intense. on the first one you're in the thick of the second and starting the third one and yeah. kind of staying in that cycle for like three years while talking about the art 
brings me to the Great Divide. One time. <laughs> Speaking of high art. <laughs> All the conversation about being filler, filler, no filler. But what I love about the episode, watching it a few times now and, and understanding like where it stood in fan favorites at the beginning, is the ambition of the artistry of the episode. One of my favorite things in the episode is the different art styles that you use for each tribe. And then, of course, at the end, the chibi avatar look, which has become such a fan favorite look. But picking those styles for that episode and just loving I love art. So seeing that many yeah. art styles just yes. smashed into one episode was really cool. It's such a crazy, like, expert level. <laughs> expert level. Hardcore mode making TV shows. Like, now let's come up with three or four different styles all in one episode. Literally, like, fine art styles. We're going to go this way with this, and then this way, and then do a full-on Japanese chibi look. You guys are crazy. You guys are doing all that in one episode? Yeah. On top of the regular animation that we're I using. know, it's mind-blowing. I remember some people at the time being put off by the style changes, but I, I'd like to think that maybe people have warmed up to it now, recognizing how hard that was to do. Like, it, it wasn't easy. You couldn't just phone it in. Every single thing had to be thought through. And do they move differently? You know, like, because right. I think that some of the flashbacks were inspired by, so there was the pompous tribe. Yes, more modern-esque, yes. very bright, angular. Cubist almost. Cubism almost, yeah. yeah. There was some Vampire Hunter D inspiration. There was oh, some Dead Leaves yeah, inspiration there in there. Go. And then Kenji, my storyboard artist, had previously worked on The Simpsons. So he had kind of a built-in cute way of drawing the Avatar characters. So when we needed like a chibi style, he was like something like this. So he more or less like came up with that aesthetic. It's great. Yeah, that's so amazing. So The Great Divide, Dante, do you feel like you've been able to mine that as much as you can? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And every now and then talk about a little Great Divide. <laughs> Maybe my defense of Great Divide was it was a good character study because it was Aang's first attempt in being a leader. What do yeah. you do? What do you say when you're when there's two sides and they're just mad at each other? Yeah. And part of being an avatar is how do you make peace between two people that are at each other's throats? And this feuding tribe stuff is serious business. Are you sure it's a good idea getting involved in this? To tell the truth, I'm not sure. But when have I ever been? He's the Avatar, Sokka. Making peace between people is his job. His job's gonna make us cross this whole thing on foot, isn't it? You know what? We're gonna take up the gauntlet and we'll defend for you. There's lots of people <laughs> online who got real excited about defending it as well, well, so. Well, I heard one of the theories why people were sick of it <laughs> was, and I think this is worth mentioning. I think I know what you're gonna say, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Nick kept airing it in perpetuity. Yes. <laughs> and yes. part of the reason why I wanna point this out is because it was the philosophy at the time of, it wasn't just Nickelodeon, a lot of animation studios and networks thought, oh, this continuity-based storytelling kills us in the ratings because right. if you're a viewer and you tune in at episode eight, you don't know what's going on, so you'll shut off the TV or you'll change the channel. Right, yeah. They insisted this was the case. Yeah. So Great Divide was their prize episode uh -huh. where the fact that it is fillery. It's a standalone episode. It's a standalone. Unconnected. So yep. they were like, this is the episode we're going to air all the time yeah. to whet the viewer's appetite. I think that what we found now is there's this huge appetite for continuous storytelling. Serializing. And serializing yeah. and binge yeah. watching and cliffhangers and stuff like that, yeah. which Avatar was doing so well and ahead of its time. Yeah. So in some weird way, I don't mind if people 
are annoyed with the Great Divide because it was kind of marketing's fault, <laughs> not, not mine. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And my own defense of the episode is if he didn't lie at the end, we'd all think of it in a different way. And I have come around to thinking that the lie is intrinsic to Aang's personality as a trickster. So yeah. I feel it's very key and important. We part ways in that discussion. Uh-huh. Me mm-hmm. and Marnie I, on that. That was how I took it was, oh, so there's this playful side of Aang who really just wants to ride like go penguin sledding and stuff yep. like that. He doesn't yep. want to be the avatar. So right. he's the type of leader, at least at that point in his development, at that age, where it's like, I told a white lie to make two sides stop warring with each other. That's true. Yeah. But then don't tell us you told a lie. My thing is like, I understand <laughs> yeah. you had to lie. Just don't tell anybody. That is so <laughs> right. Zuko of you. Just don't tell anyone. Keep it a secret. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we lose you, we're going to play a very, very quick one question game. And then we have to ask you a couple of very key questions that Dante will get to the bottom of with you. I have a multiple choice question. It's a trivia question for our segment, Cannon Fodder, C-A-N-O-N cannon fodder and you have to tell me which of the the following things and i know i promised you that it's going to be pretty easy to tell the last time i did this i said that momo was short for mo money just so you know (laughs) so uh that was one of the choices so here are the four statements and only one of them is true which of the following is true it turns out katara is faking her ability to waterbend in season one (laughs) second one b King Boomy was based on Mike's Uncle Jimmy Boom Boom DiMartino. <laughs> C, the Northern Air Temple was inspired by Brian's trip to Whistler Blackcomb. Or D, Appa is short for Awesome Paw Print. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's gotta be C is uh-huh, the true one. Gotta be C. That's also a very Brian thing to do. Like, I went to some obscure place yes, and correct. I'm going to base this whole episode <laughs> on right. it. That's right. I love that's the kind of artist Brian is. Yeah. But don't you kind of wish you could meet Mike's Uncle Jimmy Boom Boom Martino? <laughs> I do kind of like that. <laughs> now, John Carlos, these are the few questions we ask all our guests. And so we need to ask you these questions. Oh, man. First one being, if you were a bender, what kind of bender would you be? Ah. Uh, I feel like I connect with water bending for some reason. I don't know why. I think because I like cold and maybe because I grew up in Seattle. Rain gives me power. It's water tribe up there for sure. That's you ain't going to get any argument from me, my friend. <laughs> and then, of course, another polarizing question. Giancarlo, what are your favorite ships on the show? Or do you have a favorite ship? Oh, man, that's such a We already know question. that he wanted to have that image of Suki looking off at Sokka. He was rooting for Suki early in the game. Yeah, that was a fun one. I mean, I always thought that and Katara were supposed to end up together. So I think that I sort of just believed that. But my wife always insisted that Zuko and Katara made a better See, match. I knew me and your wife, we <laughs> saw yeah, some things. You know, we saw some things I thought. And it was a little bit like I was in denial. Like I was like, no, they don't. But now I sort of see what she means. So, <sighs> yeah. But you know one thing that really bugs me, speaking of shipping, in season one, when the Fire Nation is invading the Northern Water Tribe, UA breaks up with Sokka. <laughs> and I'm like... 
best timing. I know. <laughs> we just were talking about that. She, I just said right when everything is about to go right. crazy, she's like, I know you're just trying to take me to safety, but I can't see you anymore. Yes. <laughs> Here's how I rationalize that. She's like, I have to yeah, come clean. I may to. die. She knew it was mm-hmm. coming. She's like, I could sense death on the horizon. So yeah. I have to clean break this so that my, you know, I'm not caught in some love triangle. I think that's a good theory. <laughs> just take that to the grave. All right. Just don't tell anybody about none of that. Here we go. Again. I like Dante's book of like when to tell the truth and when to not tell the truth. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. <laughs> Clearly, it's a situational thing. <laughs> oh, amazing. This has been so much fun. Giancarlo, thank you so much. I, it yeah. means so much to us that you made time for this. We know how busy you are, as you should be, as you are in demand. And I hope I get a chance to work with you on something. Um, Me too, Giancarlo. I miss working with you. But you are always welcome back on the pocket. We would love to have you would come back. We would love that. I was really looking forward to it. It's always great to see you guys and chat. Great. This was fun. Great. Giancarlo, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, man. Yeah, this was really fun. So fun. Follow us on social media. I'm at Janet Varney on Twitter, at the JV Club on Instagram. You are at Dante Bosco basically everywhere, Everywhere, right? except for on TikTok, at Dante. Next week, we'll be recapping episode 19, The Siege of the North, part one, with voice actor, director, and friend, Christopher Sabat. See everybody next Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 